In the middle of the 20th century, in the United States of America, hundreds and hundreds of teenage boys and girls are becoming hopeless dope addicts every year. It's fantastic, it's unbelievable, and it's terrible, but it's true. But there's one sure thing. Nobody is going to stay an occasional user very long. This is one game nobody beats. If you use narcotics before long, you'll have the habit. About the hardest in the world to break. Hello, welcome. This is the Dr. Junkie Show, and I'm your host, media critic Ben Boyce. And today's episode is about the media. I've been saying for years on this show that media teaches us things, especially when it comes to places we don't normally go in real life. If you think about prison, but you've never been to prison, you probably still have images and beliefs that pop to mind from the media. If you try to imagine what war is like, you probably have a lot of images to choose from, even if you've never been to war, from the media. And when our knowledge comes from media representations designed not to teach us the truth or inform us about history, but rather to entertain us, well, we shouldn't be surprised that we're often full of crap. It's our diet. I love media studies. We live in a world that is increasingly media-focused, And that means we learn more every year from representations instead of from real life. That's a good thing in many ways, because if we had to travel everywhere we wanted to learn about, we wouldn't be able to obtain anywhere near as much information as we can in a world where we can read about it, watch a documentary about it, or more likely, watch a movie or a TV show about it. Those TV shows are really good, at least if your standard is getting people to tune in. And the shows that currently draw the most attention are representations of what our culture prefers to imagine, to consume, to fantasize about. The Nielsen Media Center is the go-to for who is watching what. For almost a century, it's been used by producers to decide which shows to cancel and which to renew. And it tells us a lot about what we're all thinking about culturally at any given time. I was born in 1980 when the top shows in the country were Dallas, The Dukes of Hazzard, and 60 Minutes. Little House on the Prairie was still a top 10 rated show then. That's the sort of media I grew up on. From 1985 to 1990, The Cosby Show was the highest ranked show in the United States. Throughout my formative years, shows like Cheers, Seinfeld, Full House, Family Matters, Roseanne, and Home Improvement were incredibly popular at primetime. They were casual comedy or light drama meant to take us away from our problems with mostly believable, usually lighthearted fantasy. But by the early 2000s, something had changed. And it continued to slowly change over the next decade. Comedy and drama were largely replaced with competition and fear in shows like Survivor, American Idol, and in franchises like CSI which now has four versions in more than 325 episodes set in three different cities. Our laughter and moral dilemmas were replaced with oohs and ooks. The competition for the best feel-good nightcap was exchanged for a competition of who could produce the most high-drama, horror-filled narratives of criminality, and viewers were treated to news stories like Oz, Dexter, and Criminal Minds. And as we've grown more and more accustomed to consuming hyper-violent, hyper-stereotypical stories from our TVs, 
We've often grown more confused about how often these sorts of crimes actually happen in real life. Those who watch a lot of TV and news and or a lot of hyper-violent Hollywood content frequently come to believe that violent crime and victimization are much more common than they actually are. And because of that, they also come to support harsh punitive policies, up to and including capital punishment. That might be the weirdest, or maybe the most predictable thing about media. Mikel de Certeau once said, the viewer knows all too well that it's hogwash, yet he consumes it anyway. That's a pretty accurate description of what happens. Without realizing it, we slowly update our beliefs about the world. It isn't just TV news or hyperviolent dramas. It's Shameless and Honey Boo Boo teaching us about poverty. And as the late great Bell Hooks reminded us, we conflate immorality, criminality, and poor work ethic with poverty without ever realizing it. This happens even if we have personal experience with poverty ourselves. We actually swap out our beliefs and allow the spectacle we consume to corrupt them. Television doesn't just create memories where none exists. It overwrites memories in the worst possible ways. With drug use, we see immoral monsters descend to the inevitable rock bottom of disease, crime, and death. And even if we have personal experience with addiction or drug use, we still update our view of the world based on Leonardo DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street or Vic on F is for Family. We can't help it. That's how our brains work. I could keep going. It's everywhere. It's especially obvious in representations of people who differ from the norm in any given culture, religiously or in able-bodiedness. People who occupy spaces and bodies which most of us are not very familiar with. And as we learn, often wrongly, all sorts of things about these people from our televisions and from our friends who have learned it from their televisions, we become ever more fearful of terrible monsters living across town instead of curious about the life experience of those who face different challenges than we do. We replace the flesh and blood of our neighbors with Hollywood fantasy, monsters created for spectacle and shock. And all the while, the prison industrial complex is using our cultural fear to grow to an unbelievable size. More than 6 million of our neighbors and family members are currently locked up or on probation or parole, one step away from being returned to a cage. Their entanglement with the criminal justice system pays a lot of salaries, from correctional officers to probation officers and judges to attorneys, along with all the infrastructure workers who support these organizations. If you've been listening to this podcast for very long, you probably already know that upwards of half of all federal prisoners in the United States are imprisoned for drugs. But at the state level, our abuse of drug users, it tries to hide. And if you don't look close, people like me, addicted people who wind up in prison because of the way our addictions are treated, but we're never actually caught with drugs, we don't show up in the system as drug users at all. And it all stems from the way we tend to feel about drugs if we've lived in the United States for very long. We think that drug users are dangerous, and that drug dealers are monsters. We believe that drug use is deadly and contagious. We probably feel like we know that using drugs impedes our ability to succeed at life, damages our personal relationships, or eradicates our moral landscape. And because we know so much, most of which isn't true, we want to lock both users and dealers up 
for their own good and for the good of society. But time out. When you ask somebody who feels this way why they feel this way, they often just know, without any specifics, that they're right. So that's why this episode is focused on media and how it works, specifically in the area of drug education. Now, as I said before, you can apply these theories to any space where the majority of citizens in that culture don't usually go, spaces they're restricted from, or spaces they're fearful of, spaces that can only be safely engaged with through formats like media. But given the long list of those spaces, which I began this episode with, poverty, disability, incarceration, mental illness, war, cultures without adequate medicine, our fountain of media knowledge means, in the words of my friend Bill Useman, that we're both, quote, scared and ignorant, fearful and misinformed. Dr. Useman thinks we should treat television and film like funhouse mirrors, not like reflections of reality. His work is linked in the episode description if you're curious. Our terrible media appetite is teaching us to be afraid of things that we're misinformed about. The ideas I'm going to discuss today cut across all genres. That's something else worth noting about media theory. There are certain specific things to be said about specific genres, like comedy, drama, or infotainment. But generally speaking, tropes, or overarching themes which show up over and over in our stories, things like sacrificing one's life to save a friend, or becoming entrapped by one's lusted for desires, tropes show up across all genres. And with drugs, the tropes include things like drugs are dangerous and deadly, drug users are contagious and should be kept at arm's length, anyone who's using drugs is on a downward spiral, which will only end in some sort of tragedy if not immediately discontinued, and anyone supporting them is anti-American. And that's about it. These stories take many shapes and forms, but beneath the characters and the plot lines, anytime you see drugs depicted in a popular media narrative, the story probably conforms to this recipe, because we demand that it does as consumers. And when we demand a product like this, one that teaches us to be afraid of our family members and friends when they use drugs, well, we're doomed to find ourselves in a place like we're in right now, watching drug users die from overdoses en masse as we continue to lock up and punish those who are struggling with a biological condition. So let's dive in, and let's roll the clock back, because these tropes of dangerous, self-destructive drug use aren't new. This is a high-budget public service announcement from 1951 called The Terrible Truth. You heard a small clip of this at the beginning of the show. Teenagers start off with marijuana. Then they decide to see if heroin has any kick. It does. Sometimes it only takes a few days to find out they can't leave it alone. In order to get money to buy it, they turn to crime. And that's the story. There are practically no happy endings when you fool with drugs. Doctors say restoring an addict to normal life is about the toughest thing in medicine. And that's what I learned about drugs growing up. That they were dangerous, that once you started using one, you would wind up using them all, and that if you ever became addicted, you'd never be normal again. But it gets better, because they offer a solution in this film. Well, what's the answer? Enforcement? Yes, that's one of them, certainly. In the Far East a few years back, they were lining up dope peddlers and shooting them in the back of the head. But it didn't stop addiction. It just made it harder for victims to get the stuff. No, the answer is a simple one. Just use your head. 
Leave narcotics absolutely alone. Remember what happened to Phyllis and others like her. Talk it over with your parents or school counselors, somebody you have confidence in. Sound familiar? Say yes to your life. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. Through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and on into the 80s when I was growing up, that message stayed relatively consistent. Our public service announcements and our politicians told us simply don't do drugs because they're so dangerous and deadly, they always lead to destruction. But of course, we all just were left with the question, then why do people still use them? Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. All of us agree that the gravest domestic threat facing our nation today is drugs. Utilizing the FBI, the DEA, the IRS, the ATF, Immigration and Naturalization Service, United States Marshals Services, and the Coast Guard. We intend to do what is necessary to end the drug menace and to eliminate this dark, evil enemy within. And alongside all the official propaganda were plenty of film scenes that both glamorized drug use but also inevitably ended with the downfall of the person using drugs. Like this clip from The Wolf of Wall Street. Yep, on a daily basis I consume enough drugs to sedate Manhattan, Long Island, and Queens for a month. Or this scene from Train Spotting. Heroin's got great fucking personality. Or of course this scene from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. We had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine. A whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers. Also a quarter tequila, quarter rum, case of beer, pint of raw ether, two dozen amyl. Not that we needed all that for the trip, but once you get locked into a serious drug collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. It was always the same plot line. Romance and glamour, followed by destruction and possibly death. I gotta go. This is Pulp Fiction, a film that not only portrayed the normal glamour of drug use that comes with movies, but also showed that overdose of heroin should be treated with a shot of adrenaline right to the heart. And it also planted the seed that if someone's overdosing on a drug, we should run away or be afraid to help them. For God's sake, you might go to jail. Okay, well then you bite the fucking bullet and you take her to a hospital and call a lawyer. Negative. This is, this is not my fucking problem, man. You fucked her up, you fucking deal with this. Narcan came out in 1971. Pulp Fiction was released in 1994. What's wrong with her? Why not just use Narcan? Get out of here! Get shot! And that was the image we usually got in the movies. Drugs were dangerous and deadly, yet cool people would always use them anyway. And inevitably, somebody would get in big trouble, maybe even die. But add to that the confusion. Like, who came up with stabbing an adrenaline-filled needle into somebody's heart? And that confusion became a constant theme in television and movies through the 90s, especially with drugs like nitrous oxide, also known as Dennis Laughing Gas. <laughs> what is the, what's the matter with you, man? <laughs> this is a scene from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, where William Shatner joined him to get locked in a dentist's office and have the old trope of the hose coming off the nitrous oxide tank. Uncle Phil's toothbrush! But it's just them giggling and laughing and losing control. And for anyone who's used nitrous oxide, that's not what it's like. I talked about this same trick a few weeks ago, 
It was used in episode 2 of the old show Chips from the 70s. And in that case, Ponch inhales a bunch of it on the side of the road, and it doesn't kick in until a while later, and then it lasts all day, but he doesn't notice it's working as he rides his motorcycle down the freeway and almost kills himself. Also, not what it's like. And of course, no episode on media would be complete without a look at crack cocaine. From Dave Chappelle's Tyrone Biggums... Is this a five o'clock free crack giveaway? <laughs> ...to the other characters Dave Chappelle's played over the years. I'm here today because I'm addicted to marijuana. You in here for some marijuana? Marijuana? Man, this is some bullshit! Marijuana is not a drug. I used to suck dick for coke. I seen them! Now that's an addiction, man. You ever suck some dick for marijuana? Huh? That was Bob Saget's infamous rant at the no. end. No, I can't say I have. I didn't think so. But it wasn't just comedy. It was everything from political speech to drama. Anyone who offers you crack is not your friend. Say no. You be the boss. That was Bruce Willis in one of dozens of PSAs that ran starring movie stars who were famous at the time, from Clint Eastwood to Pee Wee Herman. And they were on the heels of a famous movie called New Jack City. This is Chris Rock in that film. I always want to be on that girl, man. This crack shit, man, has got me, man. I don't got no control over it, man. I try to kick, man. That shit just be calling me, man. Be calling me, man. I just got to go to it. I need help, man. Come on, man. And just like it's happening again now, with drugs like fentanyls and xylazine, those media images were used to defend new rules and regulations, new laws, extended prison sentences. It all works together. You must take back the streets. And you take back the streets by more cops, more prisons, more physical protection for the people. The truth is, every major crime bill since 1976 that's come out of this Congress, every minor crime bill, has had the name of the Democratic senator from the state of Delaware, Joe Biden, on that bill. We must take back the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting your son or daughter or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents, it doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to have to uh, become uh, uh, social uh, become socialized into the fabric of society it doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society the end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe shoot my sister beat up my wife take on my sons nowadays the recipe for hollywood blockbuster or successful psa has changed consumers still demand the same high drama scripts but producers can no longer stigmatize groups of people who they used to be able to freely degrade. But one group is still on the list of bad guys who can be demonized without many viewers taking offense. Drug dealers. Drug dealers hold a special place in our current culture as one of the only groups of people who are allowed to hate. I mean seriously, think about it. The United States is a country where, for the majority of our history, you could say, I hate blank, and insert a number of identities there without getting much pushback from the people around you. It was acceptable to hate black folks, to hate poor people or non-Christians, and even women, especially if they refused to stay in their socially assigned place. But slowly, those categories have eroded, 
And now we're left with just a few groups who are actually allowed to pour our hate upon unreflectively as a culture. It's pretty much terrorists, child molesters, murderers, and dope dealers. That's it. You won't get much pushback for saying you hate these folks. So the media goes to where they're allowed to do their best work. They aim their scripts at these identities, creating monsters fit to scare even the most liberal prison abolitionists into rethinking their stance. And of course, it has to be clever. We don't just hate them because they're drug dealers. Not if it's well scripted, anyway. You want the viewer to know that the dealer is a scuzzball before they say a single word. And that means you have to make them look like an awful person. Act like an awful person. By the time we see them deal drugs, that should just confirm what we already know. It isn't just drama, like Euphoria, where we saw the infamous mouse in season one. So this your little bitch? Nah, bro, that's like my little sister. Now, when Fez said his dudes were coming over, I didn't think his dude would be this dude. My name is Mouse. It's a pleasure to meet you. But, you know, that's what happens when you hang out with drug dealers. This is John Cena as a drug dealer selling Amy Poehler and Tina Fey well, apparently anything they want in the movie Sisters. We are looking for to buy drugs. What you want? I got ketamine, meth, MDMA, Adderall, Bromo Dragonfly, heroin, coke, crack, codeine, oxys, perks, vikes, PCP, LSD. He shows up in a white tank top, looking like he just finished working out, swolled up, and his character has tattoos on his face. Another tired trope used to fire up our auto-fear circuits when we're watching. Although that one's rapidly losing steam now that tattoos are becoming so popular. Did I say crack? Because I got more mm -hmm. of that too. And true to the stereotype, the dealer won't take no for an answer. I didn't drive my ass across town to sell some mom some fucking dirt pop. And of course, who can forget Traffic? The movie with Michael Douglas and Topher Grade, which shows both an awful stereotypical image of a drug dealer with a black man who sexually assaults a young white girl after introducing her to shooting up heroin, but also constructs the entire plot around the downfall of anybody who has the gall to think they can safely use that drug. I'm looking for my daughter, Caroline. She's been here. Business, man. Don't you get the fuck out of here? I need to find my daughter, all right? I'll pay you. Who in the fuck? Do you think you are? Where the fuck do you think you are? That brings me to the last thing I want to talk about today. Since drug dealers are still on the list of people we're allowed to hate, we've seen this move in recent history to stigmatize Big Pharma, especially the people that marketed and sold opioids, like Oxycontin and Fentanyl. And this isn't me defending those companies, although it might sound like that as I start talking about this. But I frequently talk about the notion of systems, not people. About trying to take a perspective that looks at the rules and the regulations of any system, the way the gears work together, and looks for incentives that shouldn't be there, or incentives that consistently cause people to behave poorly, and then instead of fixing the incentive, we just replace the individual. And I see that problem right here. We're a country that seldom wants to do the real work of updating the system. So instead, we just go on assuming that everybody who's in a position of power will probably be good-hearted. And if they do something illegal, that will catch them. And so we frequently see things in our recent history, like Bernie Madoff, or Harvey Weinstein, or Matt Lauer. 
And it's always tempting to just point to bad actors and be done with it. Fire them and replace them and move on. But when I look at the pharma crisis, although it's funny it's being called that, because I see the real pharma crisis is the fact that the one safe supply that users have had is now being cut. Because doctors are getting scared to write these prescriptions and pharmacies are getting scared to fill them. Anyway, what I see is there was a playing board before the Sacklers and tons of other organizations who acted just like they did. There were rules and regulations. There were norms. There were things that you could do if you had access to money or if you had a big audience. And there was this new thing called social media, which was being used in all sorts of clever ways. And so there's cool rap songs about fentanyl. And Oxy was marketed as this hip drug that's not addictive. But now that all the cards are falling, we need somebody to blame. And while we're all blaming the Sacklers and other families just like them for working within a system that existed long before they got here, we're also already seeing the capitalization of the story. This is audio from the Hulu series, Dope Sis. All your doctors are going to be asking, how is this even possible? Your most effective talking point are these magic words. Less than 1%. Less than 1%. Less than 1%. They told me that less than 1% would become addicted. The culture we live in shapes our media. The bad guys we're allowed to hate come to be the bad guys portrayed on our screen. The media we consume shapes our culture. The bad guys on our screen become the monsters under our beds. And that fear leads to laws and policies meant to restrict and punish those same bad guys. It can turn into a vicious cycle. As we continue this cultural project of checking bad guys off the acceptable list of it's okay to hate them, we can expect two things. One, our culture will continue to grow apart so long as we keep avoiding the work of mending it because we have less to agree about. And two, Hollywood and other producers of mass media will increasingly lean into those stereotypes which are not yet restricted. The war on drugs is ending, one way or another, and our history books will not be kind to us, nor the generations which came before us and insisted on killing, torturing, and locking up drug users and dealers. But we can halt the damage and get to work on the project of healing. The sooner the better. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce. They don't like to see anybody not using this stuff just because they do. Chuck Franny talked me into using heroin. He said it would make him feel better. So I tried it. But I was going to be smart. Just take it or leave it. Nothing was going to happen to me. But before I knew it, I was hooked. Bad.